Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. Join us as we dive into the topics that mainstream media is too frightened to mention and chase the awkward truths our politicians would rather we didn't know. Well, not all politicians, because joining us today we have the former Premier of Queensland, Campbell Newman. He wasn't only the former Premier, but also served as the 15th Mayor of Brisbane. He was the MP for Ashgrove and the leader of the Liberal National Party. Campbell joins us now. Campbell, welcome to the show. G'day, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Look, your Wikipedia rap sheet suggests that you're a Queenslander through and through, but you're actually a Canberran with parents who are politically active in Tasmania. How did you end up becoming one of... <laughs> oh, dear. How did you end up becoming one of Queensland's most recognisable Queenslanders with that history? Oh, look, you've... Well, you've sort of gone further into my background, I think, than anybody ever has, so... <laughs> Well done. Maybe there's, maybe I should bail out. Maybe I should do a, a Woolworth CEO and bail out now while the game's good. <laughs> uh, look, it's like this. The simple story is, look, my family ultimately came from, from Sydney and Melbourne. So the dad's side of the family from Sydney. Mum was from Melbourne. Dad was uh, in the army. And so we moved all around Australia, you know, um, in my early years. And I was born in Canberra. But they ended up settling, would you believe it, in Tasmania. Uh, so that's what I did my high school years. Then I joined the army myself and I ended up, um, you know, again, moving around a bit, but, but settled on Brisbane, married a Brisbane girl and, of course, um, never left after that. So that's how I ended up here. Often people will talk about me, sort of the people in the, in the, sort of in the know will, will talk about me being Tasmanian. But I think it's it's really good that we keep that Canberra bit suppressed. <laughs> yes, well, your real crime was being from Canberra. I mean, the, the, it's a sheep that, panic. That would have been far up here. That would be far worse. I can tell you that now. You could sort of explain Tasmania, but Canberra, well, the Premier, Stephen Miles, had a go at Canberra just the other day. You, you see what I mean? Well, I have to say, the one thing that the Voice to Parliament referendum did do was confirm that the Canberra bubble is not a myth. It is a real thing. And we had it displayed in full colour for us as the results of the referendum that Canberra is definitely a world all on its own. But look, we're going to talk about the nightmare that the state of Queensland has devolved into in a moment and give Labor a fair whacking as we're at it. But first of all, it's fair to say that every Premier faces periods of extreme difficulty and challenging events. COVID was definitely one of those challenges. Were there any really big events that you've seen go through since you left the role and you thought, gee, you know, I wish I could have been there so I could have done something different? Well, COVID is the big thing uh, because uh, it should have been handled completely differently. And I'm not being right wise after the event because I, you know, I've been a commentator on, on Sky and, and this network uh, for for some time, and you know, during the the first probably I'd say four months of COVID, you know, I was prepared to roll with it and see, you know, how the politicians dealt with the issues. But from probably about September 2020, uh, that's when it became clear that this was just a complete overreaction, a knee jerk reaction, and there were just so many things that happened Australia wide which should never have happened. Uh, but particularly in Queensland, it was quite egregious. And, and the way that um, the, the Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk acted and, uh, you know, in concert with the Chief Health Officer at the time, now sadly our Governor, um, you know, it was just an outrage. Um, you know, the locking of Queenslanders, particularly of limited means, out of their state. 
um, the, the sort of the, the statement that Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders, um, the, the way that, uh, you know, the police were sent out to sort of fine everyday people for minor transgressions. But, of course, they can't deal with youth crime now. You probably want to talk about that later on. So there's just a, a whole range of things. And at that time, you know, having been in political office, you really do feel really frustrated. It just shouldn't have happened that way. Well, I also saw that it, uh, the, the relationship that people had between politicians um, and the citizens, isn't, it's never been brilliant, OK? People don't love their politicians to death like they would other things, but it definitely changed during the COVID years. People uh, decided that, you know, they sort of became afraid of the politicians. They became afraid of the police as well. That wasn't a good thing. But uh, look, my mother was a Queenslander and my memory of the state comes mostly from my holidays there. It's a mixture of beautiful beaches and really, really, really scary wildlife. But whenever you cross the border into Queensland, it always felt like you were going back in time to some kind of Triassic era. It was just magical. But in recent years under the Labor government, the state has taken on a kind of different reputation. And as you said, COVID started that, but you know, how did you feel particularly when you saw things like the photographs of parents handing their children over the border during Father's Day and things like that? Was that when you started to feel that you'd crossed a line, that the state was becoming something that Queenslanders never were? You always used to be so friendly. And then we had these terrible scenes coming out of the press. Oh, look, that was uh, particularly crazy. And it, look, it just made absolutely no sense. And by the way, in, in, a, in a way, the, the police showed a level of um, common sense at that time um, against these crazy, you know, draconian edicts, um, which we probably should acknowledge. But, you know, it, it probably didn't, you know, it certainly didn't comply with the supposed whole regime of, you know, sort of isolation, etc. cetera. Um, it, like, it was just shocking. I mean, when it really got to me, actually, and, and it's probably a bit earlier than I said before, was April 20... Uh, uh, 20 when we had Anzac Day, so it was the 25th of April, we had a four-plane flyover on Anzac Day to commemorate our war dead and their sacrifice, right? And the Chief Health Officer and the Premier uh, sought, well, banned it, basically. So four aeroplanes, warbirds, flying over Gold Coast and you know, probably the southern suburbs of Brisbane, banned because that was somehow the wrong thing to do. That was going to sort of you know, cause an outbreak of COVID. Well, it was just nonsense. I mean, and, and what got me and what disappoints me to this day is the way that so many people who are supposedly leaders in our community, so many people who are supposedly uh, support civil rights, etc., and freedom, kept their mouth shut. Uh, and it was cowardice en masse, en masse cowardice. And... Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to take a long time for, for many of us to sort of forgive those individuals. Uh, not, not once did the Human Rights Commissioner in Queensland jump up and down about those uh, incursions on the freedoms, the everyday freedoms of Queenslanders. But uh, that same individual, of course, has had plenty to say about, um, you know, the rights of uh, young criminals uh, when the government has sought to take action. So, you know... Uh, as you can tell, uh, your viewers can tell, I've got a very bad taste in my mouth about all that now. Yeah, you know, and we, we haven't even spoken about, say, for example, vaccine mandates. I mean, there was, you know, there was absolute coercion there to uh, to, to 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 make people you know, have vaccinations, 
and they were they were basically in the public sector. They were, they were essentially told, "Well, you you either get the shot or you you don't have a job." So yeah, that, that was just just outrageous. Um, I, I didn't then, even I didn't even know you had. Oh, God. I didn't even know you had a, a, someone in charge of civil rights over there in Queensland. We didn't hear much from them during the pandemic. But I, I no, chose actually silent. I chose to start with them, but this idea, because that's when the first breaks started occurring. It changed the way that people spoke to each other, the changed way society operated, and it appeared to be the beginning of a, a political class divide and also a divide between the states. I mean, you've been collecting states between your parents and yourself, you've been everywhere, but there now seems to be this idea that we know who's from Queensland, uh, you know that Victoria is like totalitarian and the Western Australia's hid and New South Wales, the, um, you know, they're the freedom lovies. We've never really had had that state identity in modern politics before, do you think that divide is permanent or that we've now become separate states? Like, that was a very strange thing to watch because before we were all just Australians that, you know, you know, they might live in a state but they weren't, you know, it didn't define their identity. Well, probably Alexandra, I'd say that Queenslanders were very proud of a separate identity prior to COVID. So See, I that's the same thing. Here. You guys it, yeah, it differently yeah, to everybody else. See, no. that's... Well, we, 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 well we, we would have said that prior... We would have said that, you know, 15 years ago. So I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I think if you ask me about the impact on Queensland for a moment, then I think the impact is that Queenslanders sense of, and this, this goes Australia-wide as well, but, but, but of all the states, uh, Queensland, from my take on it, has always had a sense of the frontier, pioneering, um, irreverence, that's where you get into the irreverence, the larrikinism, all that sort of stuff. But Queensland has accelerated down into the, 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 the ravine, if you like, into the abyss of this sort of conformity, compliance, obedience to, to stupidity from government. I mean, again, let's be very clear. We saw stupidity, you know, writ large from government across Australia. But, you know, so many people in Queensland sadly drank the Kool-Aid and, and complied, whereas they would have they should have been standing up and, and, and speaking up. And, you know, I do note that it was in Melbourne that we, you know, we saw, you know, the biggest protest against the madness of COVID. We didn't really see that to that extent on the streets of, of, of Brisbane or other places in Queensland. That's actually quite true. And we do give Victoria a bad rap for being the totalitarian state from their government perspective, but they also did have the biggest protests of any of the states and multiple protests at that. Although we did joke in New South Wales about building a little bit of a wall between us and Victoria, just, you know, just in case to keep uh, Daniel Andrews out. But we're going to come back in just a second and talk about youth crime. We're here and uh, we're back in a few seconds. Welcome back. We're here with Campbell Newman to talk about the uh, terrible youth crime rave that has been taking hold of Queensland. Now, Campbell, uh, Queensland was always famous for its beaches and definitely famous for its terrifying animals. I mean, I know when I went to north, far north Queensland, they put cages in our five-star hotel room to catch things. They did actually catch stuff, so it's not a myth. It's true. You've got to be careful in Queensland. But people are starting to compare Queensland to Democrat-run cities, which is, of course, never a good sign. There is horrifying footage coming out of teenagers trying to break into people's houses, beating at doors with machetes. And it's not just the crime wave that's being committed, it's how it's happening. It's all wild and unhinged and un excessively violent. You know, have the, has the police commissioner and the premier lost control of the state of Queensland? 
Well, I felt that the police commissioner hadn't done enough uh, to serve the community and keep them safe, and that's why I welcome the fact that uh, uh, she announced that she was going last week. I think that was, um, you know, very very important and a very important step. And the officer that's been appointed as the acting commissioner, uh, I believe from my time in office where I knew this gentleman well, uh, I believe that he, he's got the goods to, to turn this around. What he'll need though is the support of the Premier. Now to answer the other part of your question, have the government lost control of the issue? Absolutely. I mean, just to give your interstate viewers a bit of a picture, this is the number one concern, and I believe it will be the number one uh, political issue at this moment for the state election, which is in October, and it touches everybody. Uh, in the last uh, 13 months, um, on the north side of Brisbane, there's been three uh, murders that I'm aware of, uh, that it's, it's alleged that youth criminals have, have committed those murders. Um, um, so... You know, it, it's everywhere. Uh, in our own street, here in the northern suburbs of Brisbane, we had uh, neighbours broken into about 13 months ago and only three weeks ago we had, you know, the, the, the little darlings back and they broke into a neighbour's house down the street and tried to get into our next-door neighbour's house and also case the house across the street. So that's, it's here. Uh, just to really underline this, um, I mean, my wife and I, lock our bedroom door at night. So we've got solid doors internally, um, security doors, and we lock them um, because we don't want to be confronted, as has happened to some people, unfortunately, by youthful offenders running around with, you know, very long lives or even machetes. Uh, and, you know, try this. The neighbours who were robbed the other night, uh, only three weeks ago, uh, husband was away interstate, uh, mum and the kids asleep at three in the morning. These kids get in, roam around the house, their heart's content, find uh, the lady's uh, purse uh, and the car keys and then proceed to steal the family's four-wheel drive. It's totally brazen. What would have happened if she'd woken up and disturbed them? That's the problem. So it's not just in Brisbane. It actually started in our regional cities in, in Townsville and Cairns. Um, but it has come to the big smoke. And, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, people are talking about it. it is everywhere. I mean, everybody knows someone who's been broken into. Um, everyone knows someone who's been a victim of crime. Um, and some of the crimes are horrific, as we saw in the case of uh, the, the grandmother over at Red Bank in, near Ipswich in, 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 in south-east Queensland, who was, you know, needlessly and, and, and tragically and savagely murdered, uh, it's alleged, by, by a teen criminal. Well, it's also... It, there's a difference between people who move into dangerous areas and they're aware that they've moved into a dangerous area and they've taken those risks into account. But I'm hearing the complaint that so many of these areas that are being attacked and, and uh, uh, targeted by these youth, cri youth criminals are previously suburban family areas that were safe when they, mm -hmm. they moved in there. So the people who live there are young families, single women, lots of children, and the people don't know how to handle violent invaders or how to deter them. So it's almost like they're preying on the poor, innocent sheep in this situation. Is that part of the reason people are so outraged here as well, because they're just moving in to the most innocent and peace-abiding yeah. people around? Well, look, you know, I, I live in an area where um, this sort of stuff just didn't happen before. So, you know, we've lived in the same house for uh, uh, almost 25 years. Nothing has happened in our street 
until the last 13 months. Okay, nothing has happened ever. So it's happened now. There's been an explosion of it. And I've got some stats here. I just refer to some clippings from the, the Courier-Mail. I mean, you've got um, massive increases in, in various crime categories. For example, assault since 2015 when I lost office, my government lost office, assaults have doubled, um, unlawful entry has doubled, uh, and robbery is up three and a half times. Unlawful use of a motor vehicle is up three times. So, for example, back in 2015, just to give you the figures, uh, there were 1,984 unlawful uses of a motor vehicle. In 2023, it was 7,332. So, these are the stats as reported by the courier only a fortnight ago. So, it is just out of control. Um, you know, I don't want to sort of... Um, I don't want to sort of downplay or, or sort of trivialise this by saying what I'm about to say, but it is a huge political issue now. It is a huge community safety, social issue. People are terrified and it has to be fixed. But it is also, this, this shows politically in nature, it is a political issue. And depending on the response of the Premier and depending on whether the uh, LNP are prepared to muscle up and offer some real answers... Uh, that will, I think, determine the outcome of this state election. Oh, you're absolutely right. And it's extremely frustrating to note that it's only when there is mass social media outrage over a particularly violent incident that the Premier comes forward and says, oh, we're going to make some changes. They're not making changes on their own. They have to be bullied by the public into making changes because they're frightened they're going to lose the election if they don't. That's a, it's a worrying behaviour from a government if that's how they're, they're operating. But, you know, these just aren't... Well, he hasn't... Yeah, well, the Premier... You, you're right. Sorry to interrupt, Alexandra, but... Yeah, there was, a, there was a, a notorious incident a few weeks ago where a journalist, I think from Sky News, asked the Premier a question uh, at a Queensland Media Club event and the Premier sort of you know, giggled about it. The reason he giggled about it because he, he saw it through the, his political lens. He, you know, Miles views things through the lens of politics, not through, uh, you know, the need to get outcomes, uh, you know, sort of delivered. And... He saw it as a political question as opposed to a question about an urgent community safety thing. So he couldn't help himself when the mask dropped, you know, and, you know, we need him to stop considering it as a political issue to be managed through through spin and press conferences, etc. He needs to actually make changes. One important change, as I said before, was to see uh, the police commissioner not renew. I'm afraid... I feel strongly that uh, she had let Queenslanders down in a variety of ways, but let's hope that her successor uh, can uh, really do a better job. Well, just before we go to our next break, I want to just ask you a follow-up question to that. You say this issue is particularly political, and I, I believe you, I think it might be very political for them. Do you think that the Conservatives up there in Queensland are prepared to take this this uh, public safety measure, it really is, to the election and really run this hard against the Labor Party? And if they did that, do you think they might actually win? Well, I think they certainly could win on this issue. Um, and again, I really want to stress... I want an outcome, I, I, and the outcome isn't I want them to win the election. I want them to get elected and fix the problem if the Labor Party won't. And if the Labor Party can fix the problem between now and the election, I'll give them I'll give them every compliment, every every uh, amount of credit for that. Okay, so let's be clear about the problem needs to be fixed. Um, 
the trouble with the, the trouble with David Christofoli and the LNP opposition is that they have essentially pulled their punches on this issue. Um, you know, they have for uh, well over eighteen months had many many opportunities to prosecute the, uh, the, this issue really hard and to actually uh, dare I say it, go for the jugular politically and also tell us what they would do. There've been a couple of things they've talked about, like breach of bail and uh, repealing this sort of criteria up here that the magistrates are instructed, which is that jail is the, is, is, is the last resort sort of thing. Um, and you know, those things you know, obviously work. But the, the, the LNP, for example, haven't been prepared to say we should have diversionary you know, pre-jail type things like uh, boot camps. Now, that was a policy of the LNP when we were in government, the Labor Party got rid of them in 2015 because they couldn't have that sort of stuff. They were philosophically, ideologically opposed to that sort of thing. Um, the LNP haven't been game enough to say that they would do that. I certainly haven't noticed. But instead, you've got um, people um, for other conservative right-wing parties, I think uh, probably KAP have been talking about it, also even One Nation. So, you know, the, the, the trouble I'm painting to you is that the LNP in Queensland at the moment could well blow this election um, because they're, 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 they're really lining up more with sort of Pizzuto in, in Victoria or, or uh, Zach, uh, whatever his name was, over in WA, led, led the uh, WA Liberals to, to an extraordinary defeat. So, you know, that's where they're going to be. Uh, and maybe you want to talk about the polls, but the polls aren't looking good for them either. That's uh, Zach Kirkup. We used to call him the Matt Keane of the West over here in, New South, over here in New South Wales. We're going to go to a really quick break, but we'll be back in just a second. We're here with Campbell Newman talking about the Queensland crime wave. Now, it was just to finish off that last topic, it's interesting because it seems like the government's trying to weigh its options between the young youth vote, which they want to keep, even though they're committing a lot of crimes and their mates are committing crimes, and the everybody else vote who are sick of being broken into and having stuff stolen all the time. So that's what the, the line they seem to be trying to walk. But you're a solutions man and you have actually got a, a long history in trying to solve this problem, which is why I invited you on here today. Look, you know, talk about what causes this. I've been looking at um, not just in Queensland but also in Victoria and a lot of these youth crime, they're in gangs and they're replicating the American gang culture, often modelling themselves over this modern rap music. I don't mean good rap music of the past, I mean modern rap music and modern American gang, uh, gangs. Now their parents always say, oh my child is such an angel, but these aren't angels. They're exhibiting troubling behaviour and they're listening to a troubling message every day in their music. Is this a problem, do you think, and part of the reason why I've got a sudden youth culture and antisocial youth? Can it be part of their culture? Look, I think um, that the gang issue is a, is a big one and no-one actually really tends to be talking about that up here. They talk, they sort of mention that they're gangs but they don't actually dive down into what um, what that actually means, I think. And, yeah, perhaps if I just go to solutions, here, here's what I think they've got to do. The first thing is they need to divert police resources from going out and just, you know, doing all the stuff that police love to do these days, which is the easy targets, the middle class of Australia. Let's catch someone, uh, let's catch Alexandra for doing 66 or 67 kilometres out of 60 zone and whack her with a fine and lose her three points. Let's, let's sort of 
let's sort of for the moment back off the RBTs, um, you know, though they're important, let's have a surge in military parlance, let's have uh, high-frequency, high-visibility patrols across our cities and towns. That's the priority at the moment for Queensland, is it's not the other thing I say to the acting police commissioner. Um, the next thing is the, the need to uh, engage uh, through social workers on the ground, um, telling these kids and these gangs that this is what's coming, that there will be diversionary programs which will see them going out to boot camps in remote parts of Queensland. There'll be no walls, no fences. There'll be adults there. There'll be no mobile phones, no air conditioning, living in a tent, having to do um, demanding, physically demanding things every day under the guidance of adults. And if you muck up there and you don't, you don't conform, you don't live with that, you'll be going to youth detention centres. And the youth detention centres will not be you know, warm and cuddly and will not have privileges. Um, so there's a, there's a whole lot of things in terms of the way the system works. The magistrates will not be uh, letting people commit breach of bail offences and just get away with it. Uh, magistrates will have to consider um, uh, putting them away as opposed to doing everything other than put them away. Uh, other things that should be looked at are these um, uh, GPS bracelets, um, I think they should be banned from having a mobile phone or having a social media account uh, once they're, they're in trouble. So they might have been uh, convicted of a minor offence, but that's it, bam. You break, you know, you break the communications. You, you, you've got to break the gang culture. Um, there might be other things they need to do in terms of uh, some of the stuff we did to break up the bikey, bikey gangs. Um, and there does need to be a real effort to for these kids who've gone into the system to when they're there, it's about um, preparing them to come out and not re not repeat offence. So we've got to actually create real pathways, real opportunities for, for kids to turn their lives around and come out and get a job. So that's about education in the jail. You know, I, I have to say this. The Labor Party have been in charge in this state since 1989, except for all the five years. It's their system, Alexandra. They created the laws, they appointed the social workers, the judges, the magistrates, the administrators of the system. Um, they listen to academics who are left-wing academics who tell us all the time about things that won't work. But I can tell you now the stuff I'm talking about will work because where there's a will, there's a way. These are the same people who would have said and did say you can't go over crim after criminal motorcycle gangs as you did. But guess what we did? And we reduced crime in this state by 15 to 20% across the categories I was reading before. You know, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, you can turn this around if you want to. The trouble, uh, Alexandra, for the Labor Party is they don't want to and they don't like the stuff I've just said. That's the opportunity for Christopher Hall and the LNP to actually put a line in the sand and talk about, you know, things that are considered to be tough and uncompromising. Um, things that the Labor Party would never dare try to do. Yes, uh, and that's well, actually what the community, that's what the community want. The community want to be kept safe. So uh, there's probably a range of other things we could talk about, but that's broadly speaking uh, a flavour of what I'd be doing if I was in office. 
Well, there's one thing that we've known since the dawn of civilization is, is that if you want to deter bad behavior, you have to instill punishments. That's the whole reason that religion has a fiery hell to burn in afterwards. Well, you have to have a punishment, otherwise people don't generally en masse can, obey can, the law. Can I, can I just pull you up there? Can I pull you up? Here's, here's the problem straight away. You talk punishment, use the P word. I probably did, in, did somewhere in what I just said in my monologue. But it's like this, you're a bad person, I'm a bad person, for, yeah, and we're wrong. It isn't about punishment. If you, if you hear, and I've had them come in the room, these academics, you know, from various universities who are experts in this stuff, that, that's not what the system's about. Well, you could have fooled the taxpayers who are paying for it. Yeah. And I think we need to get back to, yeah, it has to be punishment. And we've got to, that's why I said at the beginning, we've got to communicate out there, the social workers on the ground are really saying, yeah, guys and girls, it's mainly guys, but, you know, this is what's coming. Yeah, well, the thing you know, is... The, the, no one's going to cop this anymore. If you don't punish the criminals, they don't stop their behaviour and instead they punish the good citizens with their own bad behaviour. So someone's going to get punished. It's either the people who are committing crimes or the innocent people who are the victims of crimes. And most people would rather see the criminals punished so that the, uh, the crime stops and slows down. But you talked about one... There's different levels of punishment. And one of the, we're not going to talk about medieval punishment when they had big problems to solve. We're going to talk about your boot camps to try to bring in... Now, is the beauty about a boot camp the idea that, one, the kids would hate it? So once one kid goes to a boot camp and comes back eight months later going, that was rubbish, I hate it, I don't really want to steal cars anymore because I don't want to go back to the, you know, to the middle of nowhere and spend you know, well, months doing stuff. Is that why those boot camps work? Because they don't leave any permanent damage on the kids, but they also hate it. Well, I, I, that's interesting. I don't know that that's the way I'd like them to see it. I'd like them to come back and go... <laughs> I went out there, I hated it initially, but you know what? The people who ran it were fantastic and I learned so much and I'm now fit and I've learned some skills and, you know, I did all this stuff. I was involved in, you know, sort of uh, out there on a cattle property and we're involved in, you know, sort of you know, cattle drenching and branding the cattle and mustering and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. So... I'm not saying well, they necessarily would like it, but it would be great if they came back with, you know, other things to think about in their lives and having having had an experience that uh, improved them. That's That would be fantastic if that's the sort of program that could be devised. Now, again, I'm saying grown-ups need to run this, not... Not, not, not these clowns who, who, with their theories at the University of Queensland. We need grown-ups running it uh, that actually can inspire these kids and lead these kids and won't take any nonsense and can shape you know, young you know, young young people and bring them back on the straight and narrow. That's what I'm talking about. Well, the good news is it doesn't actually matter if they love the camp or hate the camp. The result is actually the same either way. They would either improve their lives and not need to be sent back there again or they don't like it and so they don't re-offend and therefore don't need to be sent back again. So either way, it's a great idea. And others have suggested a different variation on that theme and that is that maybe they get shipped off for military training where they get separated from their gangs, they get taken away from dysfunctional family environments and they they get put into a high discipline environment with lots of strong male role models because it is overwhelmingly young men who commit these crimes. Now, we're not the first people to think about this. Many, many countries send their troubled youth to military training to make men out of them, basically. Do you think that is a conversation that we should at least be offering young offenders? Say, hey, yeah. you have an option yeah. to sign up if you want to instead. Yeah. I think 
it's a blend of both things we've talked about. It's it's really that that's the way I see the boot camps as well. That you you actually stated it far better than me. I think um, that, that that's the that's the sort of environment we need. You know, strong role models who can actually get the respect of these kids and um, you know put them through you know, a program where they will learn skills and they will think about other other things in future. And you know, it is about you raise this thing about the gang culture. We've got to actually break up the gang culture. So they, yeah, this is why they need to, whether you know, just just in terms of committing a minor offence, they need to essentially be told you don't get a mobile phone anymore. You, you don't get to. Have, you don't have the privilege of a mobile phone while you're in this. You know, while you're on. You're, you know, you're 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 under the, some sort of order from a from a magistrate. You know, everything we can do to break their communication up and those networks up, uh, the better. Well, I think a lack of strong role models is a big problem because it's not just that they're not getting them uh, from their peers. They, their school teachers are not forming strong role models for all the time because they're not allowed to uh, put out the same boundaries that you and I had when we were at school. If we mucked up, we were terrified of what our punishments would be if we behaved poorly at school. These days, they're handing out participation awards and bad behaviours encouraged with all these mass protests where you don't even go to school half the time anymore. And when they get home, many of these poor kids don't have role models at home to go after because their parents aren't there or they've got, you know, dysfunctional families. But how do you get the kids back into an environment where they do have role models? That is the question. And also you have to make keep in mind that the people who are victims, they do deserve justice. And one of the most important things you can teach a young teenager is about the concept of justice. If you hurt someone, there has to be repercussions for what you have done. And I think in letting them go all the time, we're sort of sending the wrong message to these kids. But I hear one last thing before we go to another break. The activists are always talking about how this is caused by poverty. The reason these kids are doing this is because they're poor and that's our fault as taxpayers. But I'm sorry, I don't really see how taking someone's car for a joyride is a, is a subsequent of poverty. Is this poverty driven or is this a social problem that's happened? It, it, I don't believe it's poverty-driven myself. I believe it's about the, the home environment. By the way, just one thing you, you said, just which I need to reflect on, is that sadly, and this is at the youth detention centre in Townsend, I've talked to a lady you know, who, who used to go there as a visiting sort of community worker. You know, there, are, there are kids there who feel safer being in that facility and would prefer to be there than back out on the streets. And the reason is they're safe in the centre. They're not going to have a parent or a, a, a relative or somebody else in the, in the network beat them up. They're going to get three square meals a day. Um, the place um, is quite comfortable and clean, and yet they don't get any of that at home. So that's something to reflect on. So let's not ignore that, that, that social policy side of it. There's got to be, you know, there's got to be interventions, you know, back at the home. But, um, you know, I think that um, we, we've sort of got to, we, we do actually have to you know, line up consequences and make that clear to, to, to young, young people. You know, it's interesting, by the way, that the police were sort of having a bit of a, uh, a brag last, what, late last week up here about the fact that they had cut crime in Townsville on a number of the categories I was talking about before, about 50%. So... You go, well, how did they do it? Well, they did it because they actually surged. They had the coppers on the ground 
going after the the, the, the known offenders. I mean, some of these cities, in, in, in places like Cairns and Townsville, you could go and meet any senior member of police and they would say, we can take you into a room here, an intelligence room, and on the, if you like, on the battle board or on the system, they could tell you exactly who the top 20 sort of families are, if you like, where these kids are coming from. They know who they are. They know who the repeat offenders are. And if they, if they can deal with just those those families and these kids, they make a huge difference to the crime problem on the street. So, you know, a 50% reduction, say, in car thefts, I think that was the figure. It was that sort of order of magnitude anyway in Townsville over a period of time. Yeah, it shows they can do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. Also, that sounds like a really good way to do that effectively. We're going to hop to a quick break now. We're here with Campbell Newman. Now, Campbell, you tried many times while you were in office to increase sentences on the worst criminals, like you said, but you had a lot of interference from civil liberty councils and international groups like Amnesty that uh, they were all trying to stop you from doing what you were doing in cleaning up this uh, crime problem. Now, it must be frustrating when you're trying to find real solutions for these kids and for their victims that you've got so many well-funded groups arguing in favour of the perpetrators of the crime instead of for fixing the problem of crime. How do you get around that? Because those groups are well-funded, they're socially acceptable, the politicians love them. I don't see how anybody who wants to solve this problem is going to be able to do so. Well, look, back in my day, the issue really wasn't the youth crime one. It was in Cairns and Townsville. I will say that. That's been around a while. Um, but it wasn't like this in southeast Queensland. So um, the issues where we particularly had problems with, yeah, were with some of the sort of um, things about youth criminals and it was in terms of sentencing um, guidance uh, and also the way they were treated, like the age of criminal responsibility when they'd be when they'd go to an adult prison or a youth prison and stuff like that. And quite a lot said about um, you know the rights of these youthful offenders. If you ask me though, where we really got it, it was in relation to the criminal motorcycle gangs, which is which is more amazing really, because these are hardcore criminal groups who control the manufacture and distribution of methamphetamines. Um, and we went after them. Well, that was a huge civil liberties issue. So, and I really wait, wanted wait, to join so the docs so back the, to where wait, we started. So the civil liberty issue was with the biker gangs. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yeah, yeah, because because the laws we brought in, the anti-association laws, apparently were so bad uh, that um, that that was that was that was sort of against the human rights of all Queenslanders. But I make the point, just connecting back to the first part of this interview. Um, I never locked up the whole state. I never stopped people coming back to Queensland. Um, what, what Anastasia Palaszczuk and Jeanette Young did um, as the Chief Health Officer was essentially take away the, the civil rights of all Queenslanders. And my point is we heard nothing from the civil liberties sort of lobby. So they're frauds. They are the, the, the civil liberties lobby in this state and in most of Australia are frauds because civil liberties is really for them, it's about they're on the left, they use it, they, they come out and make a noise when it's when it's a, a government on the right, okay? And I really want to make that point. So how do you deal with it? Well, I think the environment's changed, okay? I think, um, you know, what we've seen in the last um, 
four or five years, well, even going back to Trump's election, I think people now get that the mainstream media have an agenda. They need to be uh, viewed, their statements or their conveying of the news needs to be viewed with scepticism. Um, and there is room for people on the right to actually um, use social media and the, those channels to actually uh, communicate directly with people and say why things are being done. There'll be screaming and tantrums and control crying from the left, but, you know, you can forge ahead knowing that, you know, the quiet people, the silent people will actually be supporting you. So, again, what I said about Chris Foley, if Chris Foley devises his, you know, six or seven-point plan of how he'll deal with the youth crime issue and it involves, you know, making some firm statements about um, the sort of measures, the sorts of programs he'll bring in, they will go to town on him in the left. The Labor Party will go crazy. The unions might go crazy. Those academics in the universities will pile on. Everyone will say it won't work. But at home, Alexandra, they'll be going, finally, someone who can deal with it. So I'm really just saying that there is an opportunity here for the LNP in this state and there's opportunities for conservatives elsewhere in Australia who want to deal with these sorts of problems. But they just need to have a bit of courage. Well, you mentioned the left, so let's have a little bit of, ch a bit of a chat about the left. Uh, it seems to me in recent decades we've seen this, we've seen justice give way to the idea of social justice. That's what people are concerned about. We've seen the oppressor, oppressed victim narrow, uh, narrative become the dominant concern of the younger generations and the left, not of actual victims and actual perpetrators, which has been largely forgotten. And inside this idea, we've had groups like the Greens who want to raise the age of criminal responsibility, which would mean that in a, a, a crime wave like you're seeing in Queensland, it becomes even harder to work out what to do with the younger people who are committing crime and very serious crimes. I'm talking about random shoplifting. We're talking about machete, murder, taking uh, cars, serious, serious crimes. So we've got them saying, oh, we've got to raise the age because these kids, they don't know what they're doing. They can't tell right from wrong. But the exact same people on the left then say, young kids, toddlers, know what they can change their gender and take that responsibility and they also should be voting at 16 because you know they're responsible enough to change the world and should be politically savvy what do you make of this cognitive dissonance that's going on in the left where kids are either really oh. really really smart when they're toddlers or they don't know what they're doing when they're young adults stealing cars oh look i think this cognitive dissonance thing or complete utter logical disconnect permeates the left in so many issues. So you've made, I think, the point well. I'll give you another one in that we have reef regulations uh, which cover the catchments right up the Great Barrier Reef, Queensland coast, right? And farmers are under, you know, threat of very severe penalties for any sort of land clearing, right? But meantime, as we speak, renewable energy companies are you know, bulldozing the top of mountain ranges to install 300 metre high wind turbines uh, defoliating, you know, vast areas for, for new power lines and for where the, the platforms for where these uh, wind turbines will go. And that's okay. And then causing, you know, harm to, to, to um, endangered species. And they, they really, you know, they, they don't seem to care about that. It's, 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 that's where we are today. That's, that, that's okay. We, we're going we're to destroy the planet to, to, to save it from climate change. It's, 
it's not full stuff. And, you know, they, they really, you, you point out back on the youth crime thing, I mean, that, those are great examples of where it just doesn't make logical sense, the things that they're saying. Oh, we could do a whole hour and but have I think crazy people, the... Again, people are, well, the people are up on it. People are aware of it. Again, you know, just again to give people confidence, um, what, what troubles me is that at a time where more so than when, like it's 10 years almost, uh, you know, since I was in government, right, and back then, you know, I, I can understand the reticence or the, 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 the concern of people in the LNP or the Liberal Party around this nation from taking a stand on various issues. The dynamic has changed. And what gets me is that they don't have the confidence now to realise that people are thirsting for them to take a position on these issues, communicate and recapture um, those, those voters in middle Australia. I mean, another one that's, that's topic of the moment, you know, literally the, the Albanese government want to, through emission standards being changed in, in, in the next two years, they essentially want to force people out of in the, the vehicles they've currently enjoyed. They want to actually, uh, you know, make sure that people aren't driving the big utes and four-wheel drives. They will be very expensive if available at all. Um, the moment... You know, people wake up to that. And the four-wheel driving clubs and caravanning clubs and people who love going fishing and four-wheel driving, that, like, there will be a riot. It's up to the Conservatives to let people know, to engage with those groups and say, this is what is happening. You have to take a stand. So many opportunities, Alexandra. Well, you know, we could do a whole show about how ridiculous the net zero policies are. I mean, I was, uh, you, you mentioned the wind turbines. I was talking at a conference over the weekend, a Liberal conference, actually. And uh, I pointed out that the deep sea mining operations that are governed currently by the United Nations have decided to exclude deep sea mining from any of their environmental uh, regulations or oversight, which is like, OK, well, it's only one of the most dangerous things you can do for the environment. But sure, let's just exclude it from regulation. That'll be fine. But you mentioned, uh, this is a, the last question here, if you have this net zero cult effectively telling young kids they're all going to die tomorrow, it's no wonder we've got such a problem with our youth. They really think that there's no reason to contribute to the future because they're all going to be dead. That's a very dangerous thing to tell young people. But final question here, do you think society needs to strike a balance between libertarianism for adults and rules and boundaries for kids growing up? Because you are libertarian-minded, but you have recognised that kids do need structure when they're growing up. Yeah, like I think that's a huge challenge. I, d I don't think you get to really be a libertarian unless, you know, truly unless you can respect others. That's, uh, I think, a fundamental. Yes, you don't want government or others to tell you how to live your life. Um, yes, you, you, you don't care about what other people... I mean, I don't, I don't care. Like, I've never cared if... You know, I, like, I, I was one of the first... I suppose I was one of the first political leaders in this country to... You know, of, a, of a major political party to back gay marriage. And I did that in 20, in April 2011 at a time where Kevin Rudd or Penny Wong wouldn't even say such a thing. So I've never, you know, I don't care about how other people want to live their lives as long as it doesn't affect me. But to reach that standpoint, people do have to have a sense of self-discipline because with self-discipline is the respect for other people. And what is missing here is... Um, you know, training uh, at home or in our schools uh, about that that core core thing. I think it's a fundamental building block to bring up well-rounded citizens in this country. That 
you know, if, if we're at school, they'll learn that there is a framework that we all sign on to. It's a social framework uh, and it's about respect for one another and what does that really mean? Um, and if we could get that message across, I think people then can, can be libertarians in the true sense of the word. That is a wonderful note to finish the show on. Thank you so much, Campbell Newman, for joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks, Alexandra. And that's all from us today. Remember, you can catch up on previous episodes of the show or check out other shows on ADH by heading over to the website and downloading the ADH TV app at the App Store. That's all from us today. Catch you next week.